Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, a man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. So I grew up in the evangelical tradition, in a faith that was centered on the inerrancy of the Bible as literally interpreted. It was a place where when people talked about the Bible being inspired by God, they meant that it was sort of scrubbed clean of the human experience of the writers. And it was a place where my personal relationship with Jesus meant everything. Uh, Much, much, much more than sort of the broader social impact of Jesus, right? In that place, that was the gospel. And in many ways, that church served me well for many years. But as I grew older, I started to go through, I think, what Colby Martin calls the shift. I suspect that many of the people watching this have gone through something similar. You know, I learned that science isn't out to disprove religion. That was a big thing for me to learn. It was a shift for me to accept that. And I started to really think about how the flood and getting swallowed by a fish, well, those stories seem like fairy tales. And when you're taught that the importance of those stories is the fact that they happened, the historicity of those particular events, well, and that that's where the meaning comes from, well, it makes it difficult to accept those stories. And I learned about apparent contradictions in the Bible, which if you're taught that the Bible is inerrant and written by God, well, and you ignore the fact that it's actually a library of books written across hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years by people who didn't know each other with their own political agendas and opinions and limited perspectives, well, that's a tough one. And then I met some LGBTQ folks, and they were actually normal and loving people. And why couldn't they get married in the church? And for that matter, why couldn't women serve on the board of elders at the church that I was going to? And I was good at asking questions. And I found my questions were usually answered with platitudes. And I'd always like to read. And I started reading books, and even books by atheists like Richard Dawkins, and I found that I actually agreed with some of the atheists. In fact, I oftentimes agreed with the atheists. Here's a quick aside that I wish I would have known when I was reading these books by Richard Dawkins, that they typically rail against the angry God paradigm and not the loving God paradigm. And I just wish I would have known that when I read Dawkins and Hitchens. So I did what I was taught as a young person, 
and I turned to the Bible. Because I'd been taught that it's a guidebook. It's a rule book. And it will show me how to think about all of the stuff that's going on in my head. But then as I read the Bible, I started to wrestle with the fact that for a long time I'd been aware that there were moral actions portrayed by God in the Bible that I found deeply troubling, and yet I ignored them. But this piled up with all the other stuff I've been experiencing and dealing with, and I just couldn't take it anymore. I was done. I'd gone from an unquestionable religious ideology, which, if you set that aside, that's actually religious fundamentalism. That's the definition of religious fundamentalism. And I ended up laying on my floor, my image of God burned to the ground. My faith was gone. And I finally worked up the courage to tell a friend or tell a pastor. And do you know what their response was? It was to quote a Bible verse at me or encourage me to read a book about biblical apologetics. I've got a bunch of those in the books in the bookshelf behind me. But they never gave me a hug. And they never said, hey, John, I love you and I care about you. Which is what I needed. So I think if you peer deep down into my brain, and into my heart, and you ask me, why am I here today in this role? I think it's because I wish someone would have done that for me. So all of this is to say that I understand why followers of Jesus would never dream of stepping foot into a house of worship. But there's something that I want to make sure everyone's aware of. That's not my full story. Right? I've been lucky. I stumbled upon Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell, and it taught me that the stream of our faith is wider than what I thought it was. And I'm eternally grateful to him for that. And then I started reading and listening to brilliant philosophers and thinkers and writers and in the 21st century, we have access to so many of those people, right? People like N.T. Wright, Phyllis Tickle, Richard Rohr, Dallas Willard, Brian McLaren. And with their help, I slowly started to reconstruct meaning in my life. And part of that reconstruction process was talking about my faith in terms of what I don't or what I didn't believe. In some ways, I think it's easier for a lot of us who are deconstructed to define ourselves in terms of what we're not, right? Oh, I'm not that type of Christian. Am I right? I don't know if you can relate. But that reconstruction work led me from meaning to faith, to a place that I can now define my faith more by what it is than what it isn't. And I found that the story of Jesus is bigger and more expansive and more challenging and more dangerous than what I was taught. And once you start to see that story, once you start to see how subversive this faith is, well, now you're seeing with new eyes. And I've learned that the Bible is dangerous, subversive, explicit, foul, honest, strange, paradoxical, contradictory, and ruthlessly hopeful. And that the Bible makes a number of stunning claims about pretty much everything, and that makes all the difference for me. Our faith doesn't have to be stilted. Our faith doesn't have to be stifling. Faith is more compelling 
and more mysterious and more investing and dangerous and convicting and helpful and personal and strange and inspiring and divine and enjoyable today for me than it ever was. So today we're going to start a new sermon series that I hope helps folks that are deconstructed. It's my hope that if you are where I have been, your image of God burned to the ground, well, maybe this can help. It's easy to deconstruct. The reconstruction is hard. Reconstruction is a process. And maybe this series can help be a part of your process. And if it doesn't help, well, know that I would give you a hug if I could. In this new sermon series, we're going to look at how the Bible actually works. And it's based in part on a book titled How the Bible Actually Works by Pete Enns a professor at Eastern University. If you haven't read Pete Enns, you should. He's right up there with the McLarens and the Wrights and the Willards and the Roars and the Bells, and he will change your life. So if you're ready, we're going to jump in. I'd like to say that every morning I wake up, roll out of bed, click my heels together, and just crush life. I'd like to say that I wake up at 5 a.m., so I can go down into my basement and ride the Peloton bike for 45 minutes because a 30-minute ride, well, those are for slackers. Oh, but only after I've read the Bible for 30 minutes. I'd like to say that I think immediately about how to build efficiency into my day. How I'm going to optimize my commuting time. How I'm going to align my strengths with my structures in the day. I'm going to get in some good skill development for my work. Maybe do a little business development. I'd like to say that I eat a very healthy meal. In fact, I usually make the kids a very healthy meal, a very healthy breakfast that looks nothing like toaster strudels, that looks nothing like Jimmy Dean sausage sandwiches. And I always, I'd like to believe that I always speak loving, lovingly to them. I give them a kiss on their forehead. I give them words of encouragement and I inspire them to conquer their days with enthusiasm unknown to mankind. I'd like to say that I crush life like that. But far too often... I crawl out of bed if, after hitting snooze on my alarm three times and trip over the shoes that I left by the bed because I was too tired to put them away last night. And then I scream up to the kids to get moving, to throw those toaster strudels in the toaster. I feel guilty about not jumping on my Peloton bike. And then I immediately start to worry about my kids. I worry about the fact that they're overscheduled. Until a pandemic hits, and then I worry about the fact that they're under-scheduled, and I worry about that. I worry about whether I should let them play their sports during COVID. I worry about their music lessons, and whether I should have let them quit piano lessons or not. I worry that I do a terrible job of policing cell phone use, and that their cell phones are a bigger influence on their lives than I am. I worry that my 12-year-old daughter knows Dan TDM more than she knows her D-A-D. I worry that the kids don't do enough chores or that they do too much homework or they don't hang out with their friends enough or they're under too much pressure with respect to school or too little pressure to get a good grades. I worry about my kids. For me, raising kids seems to generate a lot of stress, a lot of second guessing. And if I'm honest, it's probably rooted in a concern that somehow I am screwing them up. And I probably am. 
And as a pastor, I worry if there's a little bit more pressure on them. And that scares me, and that stresses me out a little bit too. So what I need is I need a divine instruction manual on how to raise kids. Oh, but we do, John. I think some of you might say, hey, John, we do. It's the Bible. And frankly, I may have said that at one point in my life. But here's the problem. The Bible doesn't work that way. It's not an instruction manual. It's never been intended to be used that way. If we just look at Proverbs for a minute, we'll see how to raise our kids. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18. And here's some guidance from parents. It says, discipline your children while there is hope. Okay, not super helpful. It's a little ominous. I'm not sure what's meant by discipline. Does screaming at my kids to wake up and get moving so we can get to school on time count? All right, let's try a different verse. Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train children in the right way, and when old, they will not stray. But what does training look like? And what is the right way? That's just what I'm trying to figure out here. Still not very hopeful. It's still not very helpful. Right? I'm just looking for bright line rules. I'm looking for instruction. Okay, so let's try one more. Proverbs 23, 13. It says, Do not withhold discipline from your children. Okay, so far, so good. I'm still not exactly clear on what discipline means. but If you beat them with a rod, they will not die. Holy smokes. That escalated quickly. I think this is saying discipline them, but discipline them only up to a certain point so child protective services don't get called. So yeah, it's not particularly helpful. Listen, it'd be great if God handed me a Bible with a chapter in it called FAQs on Godly Rules for Parenting. It tells me how to discipline my kids in a way that doesn't necessarily involve capital punishment or some treatise on what the right way to raise kids means. But that doesn't exist. It's not The Bible is not supposed to be used like that. And here's an important point. How the Bible addresses this one particular topic of raising kids is a window into how inadequate and truly unbiblical a rule book view of the Bible is. But before we move on to the Bible as a whole, let's stay and hang out in Proverbs for just a second longer. Proverbs actually makes clear that seeking wisdom rather than grabbing for answers is what the life of faith is all about. Seeking wisdom rather than grabbing for answers is what the life of faith is all about. Proverbs is a book of wisdom, after all. So tucked away at the end of the book of Proverbs, minding its own business, trying not to grab our attention, are back-to-back -back bits of wisdom that totally and completely contradict each other. Proverbs 26.4 says, Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. The next verse. Answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. Okay, I'm going to read it again real quick. 26.4. 
Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. The next verse. Answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. So wait. Do you answer fools according to their folly? Yes or no? And this is not a small topic. It's not a minor issue. Fools is a catch-all term for haters of knowledge, for slanderers, for people who are stubborn, ignorant, prideful, greedy, etc. Right? Today, a term we use for this is a jerk. For some reason, I think of these verses when I come across something on Facebook, a comment on Facebook that is so foolish, and I'm wrestling with whether or not to respond to the post or just to move along. Now, these two verses clearly are contradictory, but that is not a problem that needs fixing. The biblical writers weren't stupid. They weren't idiots. They weren't intentionally contradicting themselves within just a couple of sentences. Instead, they put them next to each other to make a point. That sometimes it's best to answer a fool, and sometimes it's not best to answer the fool. What option is best at this particular moment in time? We see a lot of nasty Facebook comments, for example. Well, that depends on all sorts of factors that are difficult to anticipate. So each time we read a nasty Facebook comment, we have to decide in the moment, what is the best way forward for me in this situation? Maybe the person that put the comment up is just letting out anger and fear and needs a space to vent. Or maybe this person's been burned and needs a safe space to just sort of throw up on the computer screen. Or maybe this person needs a smackdown. The point is that Proverbs 26, 4, and 5, it doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't tell us how to think. It wasn't designed to do, to do that. Instead, it models something better. The permission to think it through. Permission to figure it out to learn from your own experiences from last time. In fact, the contradiction sets up our expectation that we have to think it through. Some of us might have heard that contradictions in the Bible are bad. They're not. They're revealing. Now, the Bible doesn't usually lay out contradictions so nicely side by side. Usually they spread it out over the entire book, like with wealth. Let's look at Proverbs 10, 15. The wealth of the rich is their fortress. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Okay, so being rich is good protection. Being poor can be ruinous. Again, the wealth of the rich is their fortress. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Let's look at Proverbs 18, 11. The wealth of the rich is their strong city. Okay, it's very similar. In their imagination, it is like a high wall. Wait, but I thought being rich was protective. Right? These two proverbs begin with exactly the same concept, but they go in opposite directions. The tension created here, it's not resolved. And it's not meant to be. The lesson is that wealth can be positive or negative, depending on the way we view it, the way we use it, and our attitude towards it. Neither the TV preacher that thinks that God told him to get a Learjet, nor extremists that don't believe in savings accounts, 
is necessarily exercising wisdom. Okay? We need to use our heads. And this is exactly what Proverbs and what these contradictory passages are pushing us to do. We're left to read the situation to see which bit of wisdom fits here and now. Proverbs doesn't do the heavy lifting for us. It alerts us that we have to do the heavy lifting. We have to do the work. And to do that duty is our sacred responsibility. A couple of points that are unique about Proverbs, and then a final conclusion. First, Proverbs, like every other book in the Bible, is ancient. When we read Proverbs, we are crossing a chasm of time and culture. The methods of disciplining kids, for example, certainly reflect the harsh Iron Age culture where physical violence among peoples was much more commonplace than it is today. And we today do not share this ancient setting. Most scholars believe the book of Proverbs was written and compiled for the purpose of training young, upper-class Israelite men for a life of royal service. This is why the book is addressed to sons and not daughters, and gives a lot of weight to topics that are most relevant to the ruling class, like wealth and justice. So again, Proverbs is written to young, upper-class Israelite men to prepare them for a life of service, of royal service specifically. But here's a twist. Centuries later, this book was included in the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible. So the book is transformed from a book for some in a unique situation, training sons of upper-class Israelites for a life of royal service, to a book for everyone, a book for all of us. This shows that the ancient Jews who made the decision to include this book in the Hebrew Bible saw value in the book beyond the purpose for which it was originally written and beyond the purpose for which it was originally intended. And so the point is that the book's very inclusion in the Hebrew Bible is already a giant change. It's a giant change of the book's nature. It's a move of the book from one purpose to another. If this didn't happen, this ancient book of Proverbs would forever remain a historic artifact, something that poor people that study early Jewish royal behavior as a career would be reading. But because Proverbs was included in a library of sacred books meant for all, it now flies off the page of its ancient origins and invites us to bring it into our current time and space. The book was not intended for this purpose, but it now serves this purpose well. The fact that the books of the Bible itself, the purpose of them, have changed over time. The purpose of the stories that make up the Bible have changed over time. It's a theme that we're going to come back to as we go through this sermon series. And this raises one of the big points of the sermon series that we're going to be talking about. The book of Proverbs models for us how the Bible works as a whole. The Bible, like Proverbs, is ancient, it's ambiguous, and it's diverse. And because of this, the Bible as a whole demands the same wisdom approach as Proverbs. Once we come to see the entire Bible as a book of wisdom, we'll come to know a Bible that opens up for us a deeper, more life-affirming, and more interesting and fun journey of faith than one that is only and fully occupied with drawing and coloring inside the lines 
And oh, by the way, those lines oftentimes contradict each other. So when we're reading the Bible, and not just Proverbs, we need to ask ourselves, how does this connect to the here and now and to my specific circumstance today? And the answer to that question is not following a list of instructions, but instead it requires reading the moment. The Bible is a book of wisdom, and so it funnels us toward taking responsibility to remain open and curious about what it means to live life in the presence of God. I understand that this can be scary. After all, if the Bible isn't always clear and direct, what good is it? Well, it's actually better than a rule book, because it requires us to connect the Bible to, to our here and now, to our specific circumstances. And the good news is that reading the Bible as a wisdom book has been the plan from the beginning all along. Wisdom and creation have always been inseparable. Take a look at Genesis 3.19. It says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, God established the heavens. What it means for God to have founded the earth by wisdom isn't obvious, at least to me. I have no idea. But it's enough to know, for me, that wisdom and creation are inseparable. Without wisdom, there is no creation. In Proverbs 8, 22-31, we have more to say about this. Here, wisdom is depicted as a female character who declares that she was beside God in the act of creation. She was rejoicing when God formed the earth, the heavens, the oceans, the springs, the mountains, and the fields. Creation and wisdom are inseparable. So when we say that we live our lives by wisdom, we are participating in the life force by which God created the entire universe. So I say all of this as someone who struggles with worrying about how to raise my kids, how to discipline my kids, and how to train my kids. And I've come to a realization that there's just not one answer. In my wisdom, I think sometimes it's probably best for my kids to be free-range kids for a while. And sometimes it's best that I kick them in the butt to get their homework done. And that maybe, just maybe, the fact that there isn't just one answer has actually been the point all along. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you for the arc and trajectory of the Bible. Thank you for all of the subversiveness and depth and power that oftentimes exists just below the surface. Please give us the perspective needed to apply and connect this diverse book to our own lives and to our specific circumstances. Please give us wisdom, now more than ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page 
every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.